I invite you all to open your scriptures in the book of Genesis, chapter 13. First book of the Bible shouldn't be hard to find it. Just start from the first page. Genesis, chapter 13. We will read the entire, entire chapter. Receive and hear this with faith, for this is the word of our God to us. Thus says the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver, and in gold. And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had, had been in the, at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. A vital part of growing up in Brazil in the early 90s was watching this TV show called They'll Do Anything for Money, which is a self-explanatory name for a TV show. 
The show presented a series of games where people from the audience would submit themselves to many weird and sometimes humiliating trials to go home with some pocket, some cash in their pockets. My favorite of the many, many games was also the self-explanatory named Yes or No Booth. From what I could tell from talking to some of you this week, apparently this was, as I suspected, copied from something that existed here, so maybe you are familiar with this concept. To participate in the Yes or No booth, the competitor would seat, sit in a soundproof booth with those big headphones that block all sound, and the game host would present them with a trade choice, which they would not hear, but they had to answer yes or no, or as they would, without hearing anything, and that's what you do when you don't hear yourself, they would say, yes, or no. So there they went. Do you trade your shirt for your weight in gold? Not knowing what the question was, and without hearing even themselves, they would yell their answer, yes. But do you trade your weight in gold for a box of used crayons? No. But do you trade your weight in gold for a BMW? Yes. Do you trade your BMW for a banana? So on and so forth. I thought about this game while meditating about the text we just read because it reminds me a lot of my own life. As I go on living in this world, making choices that might or might not impact my entire future, I don't know, without knowing the immediate or even, even less, their lasting consequences, sometimes I feel like those competitors. Is this what Living by faith means you don't know what's happened, so you're just yelling yes or no. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever prayed like this? Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. Amen. What do we do is the question hanging over our heads when we do not know what to do. Some of us, we know, right here, are going through periods of uncertainty about the future or insecurity about the present. As we struggle to fulfill our callings and vocation, vocations in this life, whatever they may be, how can we know we're doing the right thing? Are we supposed to take the proverbial leap of faith, staking our fates, on a massive jump into the unknown, hoping against hope that there is a God out there who will catch us. Is that what living by faith means? Or should we be more proactive and active and take matters into our own hands, trusting our ability to pursue and achieve what's best for us? Our text this morning, thank God, talks about that. 
After leading the people of God out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, Moses, the author of Genesis, tells that same people a tale of their patriarch, Abram, who did the same thing centuries earlier. In Genesis 13, we read, we just read, how Abram came out of Egypt and into the promised land. And then we see Abram's choices and how he went on to make them after being delivered by his God. However, this is not just a tale of ancient history. There is more to this text than that. Through the same Spirit of God who inspired Moses to write Genesis 13, we will see our Savior Jesus. We will see what he accomplished so that all who trust in him can be sure of God's promises. So, in summary, we will see this morning that God calls his children to live by faith and not by sight. This is the main thing we need to grasp from this text this morning. God calls his children to live by faith and not by sight. And we're going to spend the rest of our morning looking at what this actually means for us. We'll see that in two points. And the first one is God call us, calls us to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. So the first thing that this text expects from you is that you understand that God calls us to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. Verse 1 tells us that Abram left Egypt after the fiasco of trying to protect himself by lying, exposing his wife Sarai to shame and humiliation. Maybe some of you are familiar with that story. In short, if you're not, after a famine in the promised land that Abram lived, he decided to take matters into his own hands and flee to Egypt looking for food. There, he told his very beautiful wife, as he describes her, to lie about their marriage. And one thing led to another, and then she ended up at Pharaoh's bed chambers. And if it wasn't for God's mighty hand, things would have gone south very quickly for them. Now, as we read, they're back in Canaan, the land of God, the land that God promised he would, it would belong to Abram and to his offspring. He already made that promise in the previous chapter, and he does it again now. And Lot, Abram's nephew, is also with him, which the text implies that he might even have been with them through the whole Egyptian adventure. So he saw what Abram did, but he also saw what God did for them. And then as they return, Abram stops at an altar that he had previously built for the Lord. He worships there. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Abram knows he messed up. He knows he failed the first real test of his faith. But he also knows he's only alive and well because of the Lord's intervention. So in a sign of repentance, he worships. Having gone down in and to Egypt, now he comes back up and to God's presence. Will this new commitment to the ways of the Lord last long? We'll see. But for now, Abram and his nephew Lot have become 
so incredibly rich after pillaging the Egyptians that the land are not that the land they are not, not there now is not enough to feed both livestock. Their herdsmen begin fighting over the limited green pastures and still waters available for their respective sheep. Bethel, we have a problem. You see, Abram's, Abram's faith was tested through a famine in the previous chapter. And his reaction was to cave in to what seemed best to his eyes. He went down to a rich land away from where God told him he should be. Now, back in Canaan, here comes another test. The test of plenty. Abram has many cattle, livestock, servants, gold, silver. He is living in the promised land. His nephew is younger, subordinate to him in the family structure. And now he's threatening the peace in the promised land. Abram could easily smite him away or simply shoo him away if he wanted. Now that you have a lot, Abram, what are you going to do with Lot? Given this context, verses 8 and 9 show us the surprisingly humble words from, from Abram. You should not be expecting this. Look, Lot, he says, we're family. We're not just partners. There's no reason for strife between the two of us. You know what? You go ahead. Take your pick. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go north, I'll go south. I will not fight with you over this. I defer. So then you think, is he putting at risk his presence in the promised land again? Because if Lot says, I want to be here in the land of Canaan, Abram has to leave. He just promised that. Is old Abram again endangering the covenant with God by forsaking the promised land? Think about this again. Yes, Abram is rich and powerful. Yet, for the sake of a lowly person, we know he loves. Abram gives up his rights, and his preferences. And can it be that Lot should gain an interest in his adopted father's promises? Though he was in the form of a king over Canaan, Abram did not count power and riches as a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself by trusting the promises of God more than he trusted his hands. Thy will be done, O God, not mine, says Abram. How can it be that Abram should defer to Lot? Does that remind you of someone? Here we see Abram imitating the true and better seed of his offspring in anticipation. He is anticipating, he is foreshadowing what his great descendant would do for all of us one day. 
By trusting in God and surrendering his will to him, he walks in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, who left his glory in heaven to come down and sojourn in this, the wilderness of this land to rescue his people from slavery. Is this not, after all, what we're celebrating this season? The fact that Jesus forfeited his celestial throne to come as a helpless baby for the sake of those he loves? You see, what, what, what this story leads us to, to realize is that Abram was so sure of God's care for him at this point, even when he was at his worst that he knew that whatever happened, God would find a way. He didn't need to take things into his own hands anymore. While this is a far less famous story about Abram's life, isn't this precisely the same attitude he had in the tale, the way more famous tale of his almost sacrifice of his son Isaac? Because the Bible tells us that Abram was called by God to sacrifice his only son, and he goes there, and he almost does it. And he not, he, his only stop because God shows up and tells him not to do it because he was going to do it. And then later on in the Bible, we, we, we read someone explaining that, and we read that he did that because he was sure that even if Isaac was dead, God would raise him to life. He knew that whatever happened, God would find a way. And this is what he's doing right now with Lot. He was willing to let go of what he knew his strength could not keep because he trusted in God's promises more than he trusted his own hands. He learned his lesson. He knows God knows best. And then in all of this, Abram points us to his and to our Savior. Because Jesus lives by faith and not by sight. That's what Abram was doing. By faith, Abram could forfeit his right to choose the promised land for himself because he looked forward to the city of God that comes down from heaven, as we read in Hebrews 11. He knew there was something way better for him. He could trust that God would find a way for him. By faith, Jesus forfeited his heavenly throne for a smelly manger because he knew his father would see his plan through. Even if he died, he knew that he came, if he came to this earth, and even if, if, he, even if he died, he would rise to life back again. That's why he could forfeit his rights. This season, we are called to look to the manger and celebrate the incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us. The one who came to earth to taste our sadness, even though his glories knew no end, as we will sing later today. You see, we tend to think of Christmas as a time for joy, which it is. I'm not denying that. However, to realize why this is such great news, one aspect that we often forgot, forget is that we need to, we need to consider the cost 
of what he did now in Christmas, not only in this Easter when we think about the cross, but the cost of everything Jesus gave up when he was incarnate. Today, Genesis 13 challenges you to think of the cost of the incarnation, the price he paid for his willingness to come and not only die for us, but to live for us. As Abram shows us, he had every right not to do so, but he did. Leaving riches without number and born within a cattle stall. Today, Genesis 13 requires you to marvel at this, the everlasting wonder that Christ was born the Lord of all. This is the joy of this season, sisters and brothers. This is God's call for you this morning to look upon our Savior with the eyes of the faith. After all, as we read in Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also with Him graciously give all things? And this will lead us to our second point. Trusting in Jesus, we live this life by faith and not by sight. We were called to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, not with the eyes of sight, who would see just a humiliated God living as a baby, but with the eyes of the faith and the promise of what God would accomplish in that baby. And now we are called to live this life with the same eyes of faith, not by sight. As we come to verse 10, the choice is before Lot. Abram forfeits. Go ahead, Lot. Look at everything. It's all yours. Choose what you want. Or we could rephrase it as Lot. Do you trade a life with the man God chose for the right to keep all your riches? Do you trade living with the covenant mediator, the man who walks with God, for walking on your own? Lot, do you trade living under the promised blessings of God for whatever your eyes can see? Yes or no? What will it be? Like many before him, Lot lifted up his eyes, saw something desirable, and took it. Do you notice how Lot describes the everywhere well-watered Jordan Valley in verse 10? That's one of the most striking things to me in this text. He says he looked at the Jordan Valley, and it was like the garden of the Lord, which was good, right? But in the same breath, it says that it was also like the land of Egypt. Not so good. Poor Lot. He looks and sees, but he is blind spiritually. To him, the majestic garden temple of Eden and the abundance of earthly goods in Egypt look the same.
they cannot, he cannot tell, tell them apart. Lot cannot tell apart the pleasures of this world from what he could only imagine paradise looked like. For Lot, heaven on earth is feasting on whatever fulfills the desires of your heart in this earth. So there goes Lot, east, as many others had done before him, east of Eden, where one goes to flee from the presence of God. Not only that, but if that doesn't ring a bell to you, Moses are, gets very clear and it's almost like his wink-wink to you. By going where it seemed attractive to his, his eyes, he goes very close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if that doesn't strike a bell, doesn't ring a bell, this, those are the cities where wicked men live, says Moses. Great sinners against the Lord. And if that is still unclear, he clarifies why this was such a wrong move. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where Lot is heading. Lot does the opposite of what Abram does. Because he could have forfeited his own rights and said, no, 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 no. I don't cling to those things. I've seen that God is with you, Uncle Abram. Being close to you, which means being close to God, is way more important than all those riches. I'll give it away. I'll give it to you. I don't care. I don't want to leave your side. But he clinged to what his, to what his eyes could see. And the tragic news of this text for us this morning is that we tend to do the same things, don't we? He goes where it seems he will have his needs met. Even if it means going farther and farther away from God's presence, away from the covenant mediator. Even if it means going closer and closer to wicked places and people doomed to be destroyed, he goes anyway. In the words of one of my Old Testament professors at Westminster, Dr. Ian Duguid, the way of the world seems to offer greener grass than God's way often. If your choices in life are determined by whatever appeals to your eyes, then Satan will make short work of you. Here, he quickly got Lot with a promise of well-watered pastures. What about you? What does it mean to live by faith in Christ for you, not by sight? If behaving like Abram, as you read the Old Testament, seems too lofty sometimes. If you think Abram only makes the right choices because he lives by faith, because he's some kind of sanctified Bible hero, if you think that's what living by faith is, let me tell you a story of what living by faith is. 
Just recently, I had the privilege of participating as a session member here at Trinity in three interviews with some of our youth who wanted to make a public profession of faith before this congregation. One of the questions that we asked them is how their faith makes a difference in their lives. Does it make a difference? Because you want to go in front of the whole church to tell them publicly that you have faith in Christ. Do you? Yes. How? How does that make a difference in your life? One of them said he likes to pray on the bus before going to school, asking God to bless that day. More than one said they tried to read their Bibles regularly. A couple of them simply mentioned that they do not do some of the things their friends do in school, and they do what some of their friends from school often do not. This, sisters and brothers, is living by faith. It can be as simple as that. Not without consequences, but it can be as uncomplicated as that. To live by faith is to believe that God already told us what He expects from us in His Bible. So we don't have to live our lives guessing yes or no. It means reading His Word and trusting He will give us all we need to know for this life from this Word. So we don't need to follow the wisdom of this world that tells us how great we are and that we can achieve all our dreams if only we put our hearts on it. Let me tell you, this is not what this book talks about. But this is what the world will tell you. And to live by faith is to reject that. To live by faith means making very different choices from your friends in school, college, work, even if it results in them not thinking you're cool or relevant. Even if it means they don't want to hear what you have to say anymore. It means you walk around looking for God's approval, not the world's. It means being willing to give up social status and comfort for the sake of the truth of the gospel. Isn't that, after all, what Jesus did? To live by faith means before each day, praying that God will keep you and protect you for that day. For it is sufficient for the day, its own trouble, the Bible tells us. Sometimes, I'll admit, that's all we have the strength to do, right? To wake up in the morning and pray that God will give you the strength merely to put your feet in the ground and stand up. That is living by faith. It means trusting that the only hope you have for a blessed day is in God, that He is your source of security, comfort, and meaning. It can be as simple as praying before going to work that God will bless you that day, but how often do we forget to think about that? 
at the end of our passage then, like many of us, Abram does not have much to show for his faith. Still, he has God with him. At the end of a passage, the Lord comes again and reinforces his promises. You are but a sojourner in the land, Abram, but this will all be yours, says the Lord. Your offspring, greater than the grains of dust in this dusty, dusty earth, will inherit the whole earth. And why would God say that again if he had, tell, he had told Abram that before? Why would God reinforce his promises at this point? Well, as you can guess, because right now, Abram has no sons to pass that promise forward. By faith, Abram trusted the Lord. Nice. And the only heir apparent that he had now lives near to Sodom and Gomorrah. How can he trust that he will have any offspring? You see, Abram, he only saw a tiny, tiny fraction of his offspring by the end of his life. And he possessed a tiny, tiny fraction of that land that God said would belong to him before he died. And then you see, Jesus, the greater son of Abram, Abram died alone. Before he went up to heaven, he had only a handful of disciples. And then you look at you, and again, for most days, you can barely stand to leave your bed. As Abram points to Jesus, you are also called to follow Jesus in his suffering. And then we realize at the end of our passage that living by faith, sometimes giving up means giving up or saying no to many things that this world expects you to say yes. However, today the Spirit of God is reassuring you what He reassured Abram at the end of Genesis 13. He's reaffirming to you that by sight, yes, there were a thousand better different ways to spend a Sunday morning. Yet, He brought you here today, this morning, to taste by faith what your eyes will one day see. Today, we know Christ only by hearing about Him, and it does not look like much. Still, one day, He promises, with a multitude too big to be numbered, we will all spend our days like Abram begins and ends our text, worshiping our great God, faithful to His promises until the end. By faith, we now receive strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. The hope for the day when faith and sight shall finally coincide. The day we will see face to face our Lord and Savior, our God and our inheritance. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, let your mighty hand and our outstretched arm still be our defense. Your mercy and loving kindness in Jesus Christ, your dear Son, our salvation.
your true and holy word, our instruction. Your grace and your Holy Spirit, our comfort and consolation. Until the end and in the end. And we all say together, Amen. Amen.